Psalm 120, right there in the middle of your Bibles, the book of Psalms. We're about to embark on a journey together as a church. I'm not referring to the launch of a new church plant in just a, a few weeks or so, though that'll certainly be a journey, especially for those who are going on that church plant. And Nathan will say something about that at the end of our service today. But I'm referring to our next sermon series through 15 different psalms called the Psalms of Ascents, Psalm 120 to 134. These are journey songs, but don't think that band from the 70s and 80s. These are songs for the journey. These are traveling songs. Gone are the days of mixtapes and mix CDs. Let's see how many people in the room remember those or use those. You made those, right? Most of us today can keep a substantial portion of our music collection in one spot on an iPod or even our phone, but, but perhaps maybe we've lost something of the nostalgia and the romance of preparing a special mix tape or mix CD for a certain trip. You didn't always do this, but sometimes you, you did. So if it was a trip maybe with your fiancé or even better with your new wife on a honeymoon, you'd stack that CD full of love songs. If you were headed to a funeral a few states away, you might lean heavily on uh, Johnny Cash, the man in black. Or maybe if it was summer and you were headed to the beach, vacation songs or beach songs or the Beach Boys might be heavy on your CD. If you're driving through the middle of the night, you just use anything that keeps you up, anything you can sing to or has a loud, groovy beat or something. But some of the best CD mixes I ever had were uh, ones that had a little bit of everything. Dark, happy, love, pensive, moving. Well, the Psalms of Ascents will be our mixtape for the next three to four months. Some are heavy, some are happy, some are hard. Like all the Psalms, they're real, they're emotional, they're experiential. At times they vent, they exclaim, they call us to shout. They're meant to draw us in, they're meant to keep us going. They're meant to remind us of where we're going and why. They're here in our Bibles to give voice or to give us words for when the journey is long and the road is hard. But what are the Psalms of Ascents? We have a short psalm ahead of us today in Psalm 120. So we're going to take a good chunk of time up front to talk about the Psalms of Ascents as a whole. Why are they called this? What makes them unique? You see already, perhaps by looking down in your Bibles, or maybe you know already, each one bears this heading, Psalms of Ascents. Some also have a second heading. They're by a person that we know, like of David or of Solomon. The rest are anonymous. Each was written at its own certain time in its own certain context. Other than the authorship of a few of them, we don't know when they were written. But at some time later on, later after them being written, they were collected for a distinct 
purpose and put together at this part of the Psalter. These were to be sung by those who were traveling back into Jerusalem for one of those three yearly festivals or feasts. And as God's people traveled up from wherever they went, because Jerusalem was up in elevation, they ascended. That's why they're called Psalms of Ascents. And it's Psalms of Ascents, plural, because there were many of these pilgrimages. There were at least three a year. These were the songs of those pilgrims who were going home. They may have lived in dispersed places the rest of the year, but a few times a year they went home. And they did so, one, because God commanded his people to do so at these three yearly feasts. But they also went willingly and gladly because Jerusalem was not just home, not just familiar, but it was the place of God's holy, mediated presence. It was the place of the temple. It was the place where sacrifices are made. This is the place of God's worship in God's presence. It's where, in a sense, at that time, where God is. And so you can sense the glad expectation in Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. It's going. It's about getting there. It's about getting to God. How about this? In Isaiah 30, you can see something of what these journeys would have been like. Isaiah 30, verse 29 says, You shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept, and gladness of heart as when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord. That's talking about one of these ascents. In Isaiah's reference, also speaks to another layer of how these psalms were used. They were naturally the songbook for these three yearly journeys to Jerusalem, but they were also used for that long journey back home that one day, really many days spread out. But after 70 years of exile in Babylon, when Cyrus let the people go and they returned to their land, as they head back that long, treacherous journey, it is said that they sung, sung these pilgrim songs along the way. Now, you might still be wondering what the relevance for us is. We aren't called to make three annual pilgrimages to Jerusalem. Not now. We aren't currently in Babylon being released and looking for some place to go and heading back to Jerusalem. In that sense, this is removed from us a little bit, but its echoes ring through the Bible. Jesus would have sung these songs when he entered Jerusalem. Along the way, on the way to Jerusalem, even on that last time he was on the way to Jerusalem, he and his disciples, no doubt, would have been singing these songs. They are pilgrim songs. And we too, still today, as God's people are pilgrims, travelers, sojourners. We are on a journey and we are going to God. Like the Israelites in Moses' day, way back then, who'd been freed from the tyranny of Pharaoh's slavery, but who had not yet reached the promised land 
They traveled. They, they went about. They were on the way. They were exiles. So we Christians, we've been rescued from the slavery and bondage of our sin, but we know very well that we're not yet there. We're not done. We're not home. The race is still to be run. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul told the Philippians. We are in this world, but not of it, according to Jesus. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. That's someone who knows about the journey and wants to get to the destination. I think we sometimes, maybe often, forget that this is life. What we're talking about right here, this journey to God, that's life. It seems to us as though life is this string of random errands and tasks and running kids about and changing diapers and making plans and putting things on a calendar and trying to keep them. It's going to work, getting home, doing some recreation, and maybe in all of this we do a little bit of God stuff to keep things balanced and to keep faithful with him. But all of these tasks, these events, this is the road. These are curves and turns on the road that's going to God. That's life. That's what we're called to be and called to do. That's why Peter wrote to exiles and sojourners, not because they literally were or physically were, but because this is the Christian's identity. The sojourners of old still model for us today, according to Hebrews 11. They model this thing of looking beyond to the better country. It says in Hebrews 11 about Abraham and Sarah and others, they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And they were seeking a homeland, a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to call them their God, to be their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Isn't this the motif of John Bunyan's classic, Pilgrim's Progress. Christian is on the way to the celestial city. It's hard, it's twisted, but he's going, and eventually he's there. This is the agenda taken up in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. It's really part and parcel of any great traveling adventure novel. And we as Christians need to recover and refresh a vision for life that this is one cosmic adventure of getting to God and helping others get to God. Now that's what the Psalms of Ascent are all about. That's where they're going. That's what they're for still today. It's happy and hopeful in many ways, isn't it? That's exciting. You say, let's go. I say, not yet. Psalm 120 doesn't go. Psalm 120 starts out on a distinctly sour note, a minor key. Let's read it. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. 
Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Now what a difficult psalm we have here. It's an odd beginning to our traveling music, isn't it? There's no going up. There's no getting on with it. There's no looking up to the hills. But this is where it has to start. In order to go to Jerusalem, you first have to find yourself outside of Jerusalem. And wherever this psalmist is, he is outside, surrounded by outsiders and enemies. It's distressing to him. He has homesickness. He is homesick. That's a proper place to begin then. Have you ever been homesick? I mean like literally homesick. I don't mean you wish your business trip would end one day earlier so you could get home and be with your wife and kids, but instead you're gonna have to spend the night at the Hyatt Hotel or something. That's okay, that's a bit of homesickness, but I mean there's a kind of homesickness where it's physiological, I've seen this, felt this a couple of times in my life where I'd been out of the country for 10 days or two weeks, not in horrible third world circumstances, just being in England, but it feeling lonely, it being dark, me not knowing anyone, not sure how to solve this or that problem, and feeling as though there's an Atlantic Ocean between me and my family and wanting to get home, being homesick. You know, we get homesick in part because we long for what's at home. And it's good to be home. We want our pillow at home. We want our bed at home. We want our smells at home. We want our food at home. We want our conveniences at home. We want to see our people, the people we know and trust and love and who love us. But there's another angle to homesickness. It's when the place you find yourself, which isn't home, is exceptionally Hard. Now, most of the Psalms in the Psalm of Ascents package are in that first part, talking about how great home is. Let's go. The first one starts out with that second part. Oh, we're not home, and it's hard. It's hard. Eugene Peterson wrote a book, a now classic book on these Psalms. And he called it a long obedience in the same direction. I'm going to read to you a lengthy quote from Eugene Peterson's book. It's so good, you're going to wonder why I don't just keep on reading and let Peterson preach this morning's sermon. But I won't let him. And yet this is a fitting word for our times, a fitting word for this week, and it's a fitting explanation for how Psalm 120 specifically speaks to these things. Here's what he says. A person has to be thoroughly disgusted with the way things are to find motivation to set out on the Christian way. As long as we think that the next election might eliminate crime and establish justice, 
or another scientific breakthrough might save the environment, or another pay raise might push us over the edge of anxiety into a life of tranquility. We are not likely to risk the arduous uncertainties of the life of faith. A person has to get fed up with the ways of the world before he or she acquires an appetite for the world of grace. He goes on, Psalm 120 is the song of such a person, sick with the lies and crippled with the hate, a person doubled up in pain over what is going on in the world. But it is not a mere outcry. It is pain that penetrates through despair and stimulates a new beginning, a journey to God, which becomes a life of peace. The 15 songs of a sense describe elements common to all who travel in the Christian way. But the first of them is the prod that gets them going. It is not a beautiful song. It is harsh, but it does get things started. So let's get started. Psalm 120. Let me suggest three turns in this short psalm. Three stanzas, really. This man of Psalm 120 was first crying out in distress. He was crying out in distress in verses 1 and 2. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. That's the summary of the whole psalm. We might wonder what distress he had in mind, but verse 2 tells us. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. This man not only had enemies who are for war against him, as the passage goes on to say, but this man had enemies who were lying about him. He was sick of the lies around him and, in part, sick of the lies likely about him. I wonder, when's the last time you really lamented, prayed about, and were torn up over lies and deception? We live in a world and culture that is absolutely littered with lies and deception. It's simply the air we breathe. Like a fish who doesn't know what water is because he's in it all the time, we can't imagine a world that fully tells truth and never lies. I think we're used to it, callous to it, perhaps even cynical about it. Just think of the advertising world. We fully expect that advertisers are not telling us the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We look back at those cigarette ads from the 1950s. We chuckle. They're so absurd. Have a cold? Try Pall Mall. We go, that's horrible. They don't fix colds. They give cancer. And we chuckle about how stupid that is, but it's not as though the ad agencies have since then come up with really a totally different way of trying to sell things called honesty and forthcoming information. Dare I mention politics? An easy target, I know. When you think of politics and lies, you might think of a string of famous lies and mistakes among our presidents. Nixon said, I am not a crook. And he was. George H. Bush said, read my lips, no new taxes. 
and then raise taxes. Bill Clinton told us, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky, under, under George W. Bush. Colin Powell assured us that he was certain there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Of course, our current president at one time told us, if you like your plan, you can keep your plan. How many of you still have that same plan? I think our church has changed about seven times since then. Of course, I don't need to tell you that truth-telling, honesty, and consistency are major problems for both of our current presidential candidates. Of course, our first president, George Washington, couldn't tell a lie. He confessed to his father that he did chop down the, the cherry tree. Or did he? Maybe, like me, you've been enlightened since your childhood, and you've learned that that actually is a made-up story. He never chopped down the tree, never said that famous line, I cannot tell a lie. Do you know why that's a story that we know? Because George Washington's first biographer made it up, made up a lie in order to teach kids not to lie. How is that for irony? We don't like being lied to, but at least we're quite used to it. A few years back, our house had a leak under the driveway. Can you picture that? A leak under the driveway. There's no hatch to open to get to it. And so we called a reputable plumber out, and they came and they worked on it, and they dug up underneath the driveway and along the side of the driveway, and, and they laid down some new plumbing as an alternative to this path that went under the driveway. And they charged us $7,000 for the work. Somehow we paid it. I'm not sure how. Fast forward to last summer, six years later, and our driveway started bubbling up with water again. An unnerving feeling, seeing water bubble up from the middle of your driveway. We called the same plumbers back out. They got big eyes. They were very concerned, rightly so. They took care of it. They worked on it and it admitted what went wrong, what didn't get done. Apparently some guy put some pipes down in our yard and never really fixed the problem. They stood by their work, they fixed it, and didn't charge us anything extra. We weren't even mad. We figure the plumbers lied to us once, then they told us the truth. That's 50 50. <laughs> I'd say that's pretty good with plumbers. <laughs> plumbers lie, mechanics lie, accountants lie, lawyers sometimes lie. pastors lie. We Christians lie. We, haven't we learned by now that a Jesus fish on a sign or business card is not necessarily any better business? What lies do you tell? How do you mislead others? How do you misrepresent what you sell? Aren't you sick of it yet? Aren't you getting angry at lies? You see, we got to start there. This man was mad about lies and deception. 
we forget that the devil is the father of lies and that liars will not inherit the kingdom of God. We dislike some lies. We're very comfortable with our own. And yet this man in Psalm 120 could rightly feel something of the evil of lies and the power of lies because these lies were mainly about him, it seems. He was in distress. This word distress carries the idea of being squeezed in, cornered, trapped in a cage, no way out because of a smear campaign. In the first church that I pastored, there were a few folks there who didn't like me. Uh, I was very young, probably too young to pastor. I did make some mistakes, but I didn't do all the stuff that they said that I did. When the church van was in the shop one weekend, I had not stolen it and sold it and kept the money. Like some sweet old lady said. When we did some renovations on our house across the street from the church, which by the way is never a good move for a pastor to do, to buy the house across the street from the church because things can go bad. When we were fixing up our house across the street, some started telling others that we must be using church funds to do that because we were obviously too poor to do it ourselves. I wasn't getting my sermons from the internet like one rumor went around. A few people said those things. Not everyone believed them, but some did. And how do you fix them? One of the rumors, not in my notes, here's a a bonus. One of the rumors was, Sarah runs the music department with an iron fist. And how do you fix that? No, I don't. (laughs) When the word was out, then it's out and people make assumptions. Words are powerful. Our moms may have taught us when we were young that sticks and stones may break our bones, but names will never hurt us. We knew it wasn't true back then when we tried it out in the parking lot or the, uh, the playground. And we know especially it's not true according to Proverbs. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Rash words are like sword thrusts. A man plotting evil, his speech is like a scorching fire. James has been teaching that to us in recent weeks, hasn't he? The tongue, so little, is like a a fire that burns through a forest. So powerful. So what do we do when we are burned and cut and pierced by falsehoods and we feel trapped? In my distress, I called on the Lord. I called on the Lord. That's what this man did. In my most distressing days, I have prayed. I wish I'd prayed sooner. I wish I'd prayed more. I wish I'd thought prayer was doing more than I thought it was. I wish sometimes that I had just prayed. What's the rest of it for you? In my distress, I 
What do you do when you're in distress? This man prayed. In my distress, I, well, I confronted it. There's a time for that. In my distress, I went on the attack. Two can play at this, this game. I don't get mad, I get even. Or maybe you're the more passive type. In my distress, I watched more TV. In my distress, I bought something new for myself. This man said, in my distress, I called to the Lord. I called to the Lord and he answered me. Oh, to summarize our trials like this more. I mean, what a summary. It's as if he says, here's the summary, here's the statement, here's the story. In my distress, I called on the Lord, he answered me. I can give you other details if you want, but those are the headlines, that's the story. That's about all he's concerned with. Well... Then he moves on to a word of confidence in verses 3 and 4. He's confident in God's justice in verses 3 and 4. He had that distress call, verses 1 and 2. Then the answer seems to have come from the Lord to the man, even though it's not recorded. It just says that he answered. It doesn't say how he answered or what he answered. But not only does the answer have, have come to the man by verse 3, but now it is going through the man of Psalm 120 to his oppressors. The word from the Lord, the answer he gave, whatever it was, it resulted in a confidence in God's coming justice and a bold word to his enemies about that coming justice. So he's speaking to his enemies in verse 3 when he says, What shall be given to you? What more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? Here's the answer. A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. The broom tree back then was known to make good fire. It very quickly turned into coals and then burned slowly. Remember how Proverbs spoke of sinful words being like sharp arrows or being like a scorching fire. These are common metaphors for nasty words. And it's as if Psalm 120 is picking up on that. He's essentially saying, I know what you liars have done to me, shooting your arrows of lies, burning me with your falsehood. What shall be done to you? The warrior's sharp arrows are coming. The glowing coals of the broom tree are coming. God is coming, but your words will condemn you. They'll boomerang back at you. This is a psalm-like version of Galatians 6, 7. Whatever you sow, that shall you reap. Now let's be completely honest. This doesn't feel very nice. I don't think David Covey quotes Psalm 120 in his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. These are hard words to speak to fellow sinners about what they're going to get. The warriors, that is God's, sharp arrows in glowing coals of the broom tree. Those are words that are difficult to deal with, but they're not that unusual in the Bible. We call this imprecatory. 
There are certain psalms, whole psalms, that are imprecatory psalms. There are certain statements outside the psalms that are imprecatory statements. It's a, a word about God's judgment. It's a word actually speaking the curse of God's coming judgment. Let me offer a few thoughts about these imprecatory kind of verses in the Bible. More can be said, but this should be enough for today. One would be that so often in the Psalms, the outrage of the psalmist is rooted in, in concern for God's character and for God's ways in this world. You see this more clearly in other Psalms than our Psalm today, but I think it's right for us to assume it here. His concern is rooted in God's character, in God's ways. Secondly, the psalmist isn't calling for something that God isn't going to do or that God doesn't want to do. He's praying that God would do what God already said he would do. There is going to be an end time judgment on those unrepentant, malicious sinners. The psalmist is simply praying against what is against God. And by praying as he did here, Notice that he was not seeking personal retribution, even though the same words could be used from that heart motive. But remember, it began by him praying to God. He wants God to intervene. He wants God to do something and knows that God will do something. He's not taking things into his own hand. He was simply committing justice to God, much like Paul taught the Romans to do in Romans 12. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. That's what Psalm 120 is doing, albeit with very vivid language. No surprise, though, this is poetry. It's graphic language. The graphic language reflects the genre of Scripture, not just this man's heart. He's prophetically speaking to those who are under the wrath of God about the coming wrath of God. And you ask, well, how is that a comfort for him if it's not retribution? Well, it's a comfort because there will be a reckoning. There will be a vindication. Often not in this world, not in this life. There'll be a perfect reckoning to come. There are so many grave injustices in this world. You don't just need the last week or the last few days of our country to see grave injustices or even mysterious problems to solve about what's going on. How many things in this world go unpunished? How many crimes are never prosecuted? For that matter, how many things how many sins, how many hurts are prosecuted, but they can never be prosecuted to the full. When is justice ever fully met? Never until that person stands before the judge, Jesus. Until then, the best, the best we can come up with is human justice, relative justice. All things in this world are awaiting perfect justice in Jesus, in his return. 
So do you have injustices against you, sins against you, that you can rightly give to God? You can rightly give to him for him to deal with in his timing, in his ways. After all, you can't repay someone enough in a sense. Isn't that something like what Paul's talking about in Romans 12? Not your vengeance. It's going to be God's vengeance. Your vengeance would be mercy. His vengeance is coming. Leave it to the wrath of God. If there are no injustices in your life right now, there are no sins against you that you need to give to God, I just wonder, are you possibly not around any sinners? Because that's what we sinners do to each other. We sin against each other. We need to give it to God. Then thirdly, this man was struggling with the weight. He's crying out in distress, confident in God's justice, but then struggling with the weight. You see, justice is coming for the oppressed and for the distressed, but not yet. So whether you're talking about a release from Babylonian captivity or waiting for the return of Jesus the judge, it's all in God's timing. And so this man feels that tension of what's to come and where he still is. And he laments, he mourns. It's almost complaint, verse 5. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech and that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. These countries were not close together. He wasn't living in both Meshech and Kedar. Maybe he never lived in either of them. They were simply representative of pagan lands, of faraway places, of being outside of Jerusalem and being vulnerable or even hated. Both of these countries were considered barbaric. Wherever this man is, that's what he feels like. It's where he feels like he is. He's homesick. And it's beginning to take its toll on him. He has tried for peace. Too long I've had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I'm for peace, but when I speak, they're for war. This reminds us of Romans 12 again. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. But we know from experience that sometimes, no matter how gentle or true or right or meek or wise or patient you are, some will be relentless in their opposition. Are you okay with that? Or will you change sides? if that comes too strongly or persistently? Have you gotten comfy in, in Kadesh? Kadar, rather? Are you cozy in Meshek? Do you feel as though this world is not your home? Or it can just keep on going on like this forever and ever and ever, and I don't need anything else. Maybe just a boost. Again, like Eugene Peterson said, maybe just a better election cycle or a new scientific invention or just a few thousand bucks more per year to make living a little more comfortable. I think we all suspect that in the days ahead, 
the lines of Psalm 120 might become more real to us, more familiar to us, more personal to us, more relatable. You don't feel misrepresented as a Christian yet? You're not listening to the same news I am. Have you been called a bigot yet? You will if you don't buckle. It's coming. You will. Last month, I was privileged to be part of a summit on religious liberty. It just happened to be on the island of Maui, which was the happiest part of it. But when you get professors and pastors and journalists and communicators together uh, to talk about religious liberty in our country these days, it can be pretty depressing. We got to hear firsthand from the people that you have probably read about in the news over the last year, like Baronel Stutzman, the florist in Washington, who was sued and lost because she graciously declined a flower arrangement for a friend's gay wedding. We heard from the, ph the pharmacist in the same state who was, who's been refusing to provide abortifacient drugs, or the Atlanta fire chief, former fire chief, who was fired for writing a book on men's discipleship that only in passing mentioned the Bible's view of marriage and gender. That's not an exhaustive list, but the list is going to get longer. What will you do? What will you give up? What should we do? What won't we do? Well, we won't take matters into our own hands because the kingdom of Jesus has not advanced with swords. We will not hurl insults back at them. We won't outsmear them. We will not return evil for evil. We'll turn back in our Bibles to the Psalms and remember that in distress, we call out to the Lord and he hears us and he answers us. And in the end, he's got it all under control, even though we wait. And we'll look to Jesus. We'll turn to 1 Peter 2 and remember that even though he committed no sin, neither was any deceit found in his mouth, when he was reviled, he didn't revile. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He was not only an example of what his kingdom ethic should be like. But it was also a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins because his people are sinners as well. We've hurt each other with words countless times. Gossip, lies, misrepresentation, maligning. And so there's great hope for those who have faith that as Peter says, he bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So there's the clear path from Psalm 120 to the heart of the gospel and Jesus Christ and him upon the cross at the hands of sinners. He was maligned and misrepresented, mistreated, and mocked, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly that we might go free and be freed to go to him.
In the days ahead, we won't let the world define us. We are not what others may someday say about us. Our self is defined solely, based solely on what God says about us. And that alone can free us from a prison of words that others might say about us. What can man do to me? In the days ahead, we will await his coming and we will long for his coming, but we'll, we'll wait and we'll march on and we'll sojourn through this pilgrim land. We'll keep reminding ourselves that we're on the way. This isn't just aimless. And then we die and we either go to heaven or hell. Right now, we are on the way. Or are you? Have you come to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins? Have you joined with us? in believing that there is no other hope. As Eugene Peterson said, have you come to the point of being disgusted with the way things are so that you're ready to set out on the Christian way? Are you fed up with the ways of the world and now you've acquired an appetite for a world of grace? Psalm 120 is the song of such a person, sick with lies and crippled with hate, a person doubled up in pain over what is going on in the world, but it is not a mere outcry. It is pain that penetrates through despair and stimulates a new beginning, a journey to God, which becomes a life of peace. So one more application, if I can. Church, pursue peace. Be of truth, not lies, and pursue peace. We must be, now more than ever, a people of truth and peace and love and acceptance, of deference and compassion, because the world needs to see something that is simply supernatural. They might look to us. Let's stand for peace. Let's pray that God blesses and changes hearts. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that you are such a welcoming God that when in distress we call on you, you hear and you answer, even if your answer is sometimes for us to hang on. And nothing changes, but we know it will eventually. Lord, if we can find comfort in no other solace than resting in your end time, final judgment of making all things right, then we have that, but we have so much more. You are making all things new, and you will make all things right. We thank you that we can be honest with the difficulties of waiting and sojourning. We can tell you, it's been too long. How long, O oh Lord? It hasn't really been too long, but it does feel like it at times. It's good for us to be homesick when we're not at home and when this place is hard. Make us restless for you above all else. Bring us to yourself and help us to help others get to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.